0: Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand how the other side thinks. Our mission? To make government contracts better, one contract at a time. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition Solutions. Skyway helps you know more, do more, and win more in the government market. To learn more, visit skywayacquisition.com. Today we return to our series of interviews with former government contracting officers who share their personal, three things I wish I'd known when I worked for the government. I set Kevin loose with the mic and he interviewed Floyd Smith, a friend of Kevin's, who's a retired army officer and former contracting officer. Floyd retired in 2009 and now works on the industry side of the government acquisition world. All right, let's get started and learn from Floyd's experience.
1: Welcome Floyd to the Contracting Officer podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Kevin. So to give people a, a feel of just how awesome you are because <laughs> I've known you for a while so give them kind of a feel of your history as a contracting officer and how things how, how things went since you retired
2: so or even before you retired. Okay, kind of let me set the stage and how I even got into this contracting business contracting world I was again a, an officer in the United States Army I um, most officers get into contracting from as an Army officer, you have to wait till you're at least a captain to do all the jumping out of planes and um, kicking down doors and, and, <laughs> and using the weapon systems that we usually, and now, acquire. I was a tanker, an armor officer, and um, it really honed in on how important what we buy, how we buy, does it meet specs, and all that kind of stuff once I become a contracting officer. So I was asked by the United States Army to uh, come into the Acquisition Corps as a young captain. Um, there are different fields you could go in programmatics or program or contracting or it, I chose contracting. It seemed to be interesting. And from there, I went to all of the certification courses and achieved the certification required to be uh, a contracting officer. And, uh, from there I went through, uh, major buying commands to continue the contract. And we'll talk about some of that, uh, deployments. And I have enjoyed the journey and I continue to enjoy the journey, although, Every day is not a uh, rose garden.
1: (laughs) So what is the coolest, or I'll go with most interesting uh, thing you
2: bought when you were a contracting officer? Well, serving in major buying commands is is one thing where you learn and hone your skills to do normal contracting. But as an Army contracting officer, I would have to say uh, my deployment to uh, Uzbekistan and Afghanistan as the director of contracting in support of operation during freedom. Uh, Responsible for contingency contracting operations in support of a combined uh, joint task force supporting some 10,000 U.S. coalition forces was um, pretty amazing, pretty daunting, and and sometimes downright scary. (laughs) Wow. So to back up a second, so what is a contingency contracting officer? Most people don't know what that is. A contingency, contingency contracting officer could be either military and in today's environment, civilian, because when the war kicked off, as you know, we've been in um, Iraq and Afghanistan fighting uh, war on terrorism for over 10 years. But initially, the military deployed contracting officers that were contracted, warranted contracting officers in the United States. Uh, They sent them to, at that time, special training so that they understand contingency operations embedded with a combat unit to exercise and execute contracting authority on behalf of the United States government or on behalf of the units for goods and services that they needed in a theater of operations. And uh, that was a big thing then because they didn't have enough because we kicked off a war. um, Contracting officers or contingent contracting officers as people started getting trained to be to go into the theaters where you could get shot at but still procure things that were not on a military, um, organizational, uh, uh, training and equipment list. Normally units go with all their stuff that they're supposed to, but as, as we learned from Vietnam, you, you can't bring everything. And when you get a theater, Iraq, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, the Philippines, there are certain things that we as contracting officers can acquire, uh, in that country, uh, to support those forces. And that's when you become a contingency contracting officer with, special uh, thresholds to to conduct those um, contracting and buying activities
1: so so you're basically on the ground in you know in the combat zone buying all kinds of stuff from food and water to vehicles and ammo and, and who knows what which is whatever's needed right well we do have some limitations can i buy vehicles but we could we could uh i haven't done that particular role so that's an example of
2: <laughs> the things i don't know i don't yeah. know <laughs> if, if you did that then, yeah we would be in trouble but uh <laughs> <Good to know. laughs> But we could lease, like uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, the, you see a lot of them running around in those Toyota high-lexes or and now, now Special Ops. Uh, we we have, I think they have purchased some now in the theater. But 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 at the time I was in the AOR area the of operations, we were leasing them for the soft guys that I was supporting because sometimes it was conventional. Sometimes I was doing support for soft operators, and yes, they that um, we would. Uh, I was able to. Uh, train and, and appoint field ordering officers, which uh, these guys and, and mostly guys would, would act on my behalf with uh simplified acquisition threshold to go out into what we call outside the wire. And um, goods and services and supplies they didn't have, I would appoint them. And then a pay agent would also be available with a slew of cash, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, to uh, go with them, separate separate, but, um, a team because you don't mix the money with the require. Uh, and that field owner officer would act with my authority to buy things at the, um, micro purchase limit. And, and those are the kind of things we would give the, uh, combatant commander in the field, uh, the ability to do a a force multiplier with me in the theater, able to, um, contract with BPAs for uh, dining facility, um, life support, um, building structures, temporary structures, wood to build things, um, uh, some some, uh, medical supplies, depending on uh, if the medical officer was there, we could help with the the locals, Um, all kinds of things that we needed to support operations, but only a warranted contracting officer could provide with binding and writing uh, uh, purchase orders or BPAs to do those things.
1: And, and BPA for those of you is, is a is a blanket purchase agreement. So it's basically an agreement to buy stuff
2: at a, at a fixed yes. price in order against that uh, that uh, agreement. Yes, sir. Okay. Wow. And then, and there was one other thing that I, I I I'm happy as a as a contracting officer was able to do, which was also work as an administrative contracting officer, where I was a Defense Contract Management Agency Syracuse uh, Commander DCMA Commander. Most folks know him when they come to. To, to work with them on the post-award. And as a DCMA commander, I deployed or was directed to deploy as an ACO to the Philippines to support uh, a joint special operations task force uh, with life support, uh, weird things such as a commercial medevac uh, for some 170 U.S. special operators down in the jungles of um, the Philippines who were prosecuting um, uh, terrorists there. So it it uh, th- those are the two of the most memorable um, activities as a, as a KO. How long were you with uh, DCMA? I was with DCMA three years, deployed for eight months, and then came back to my command. My deputy ran the organization while I was deployed. How many times have you been deployed as a contracting officer? Uh, let's see, one, two, when I was, uh, and then um, three. I um, as a as a contracting. Chief of Contracting for Supply Assistance Branch in Korea, U.S. Contracting Command, Korea. I was assigned there. We went to Thailand, and I deployed there for a repatriation of U.S. forces out of Vietnam, and they were needing contracting guys to help them with some supplies uh, with the State Department and Military Affairs Group there, so three times. Wow. But I'm sure there are a lot of guys got a lot more deployments on their belt over the years, but... Uh, you know, it, it, uh, is it, those are memorable uh, contracting officer duties besides working in a buying command where you're buying stuff at a major command. So, yeah, you, you've got a, that's why I wanted to have Floyd on he's got unique experiences
1: <laughs> because you've you've done stuff in the U.S. You've done stuff overseas. You've done stuff in between. <laughs> you've been deployed a few times. So, yeah, you've got you got very cool background. So, my my favorite question uh, is, is what are the three things you wish you knew when you were a contracting officer? Spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> we've already kind of talked about what his three are, but I'll let you go with the first one here. So, what what is the first thing that you wish you knew when you were a contracting officer?
2: I would say, do not rush to become a KO, or, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, KO, CO, but as an Army guy, we like to use KO because we do not like to get them confused with CO, commanding officer, so... I would say do not rush to become a K.O. Serve as a contract specialist as long as you can with a seasoned contracting specialist and learn all you can about contracting basics. As a young captain, when I came in uh, into the acquisition corps and into the contracting uh, field, the first thing I wanted was, hey, where do I sign? I'm a contracting (laughs) officer. I'm a commander, been a commander. I, where do I sign? Because I'm a contracting officer. I was a contract specialist, and I was told by one of these seasoned uh, senior ladies to get over there, sit down, grab that far, start putting a, a, a solicitation packs together, get that file put together back in those days by hand. And I, <laughs> I thought she was on something. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an officer. Where, where do I sign the good stuff? That is not how it works. That is a great insight.
1: Yeah, because I, I remember the same thing as when I, I, I got, like, I got to be like a GS twelve. I'm like, okay, well, I've been doing this long enough. I, 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 I can get my warrant, and then all of a sudden, you start to realize the authority that comes with that, the amount of responsibility that comes with that. The, you know, it's, it's don't be in a race to get there. That's a, it's a really, it's a really great advice from the, the perspective of you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And that's, and it's such a, it's such a wide open space. One of the ep- early episodes of the podcast that we did w- was about how someone becomes a warranted contracting officer, and all the, all the the responsibility that's written in the far part 1.6. And when you read it, it kind of throws you back a bit until you really kind of digest
2: how many things you've got to learn. So that's a great one. So what's your second one? Uh, Let's say do not let senior officers or senior commanders or general officers direct you to do something you as a KO are not comfortable with unless it impacts life security or safety or jeopardizes mission accomplishment you may walk the line of the far in some of the ambiguous areas to accomplish a mission but to stay within the far but never ever
1: violate the law and and that's that's one of those that I think people sometimes don't realize going back to the responsibility part of it is that that the contracting officer is not his boss or his boss's boss or his or her boss's boss's boss maybe telling them to do things that, that the FAR doesn't allow for, that law doesn't allow for that, that, you know, you have to kind of understand you know, what, what you're signing up for here. Right. And your name is on that document forever. And I, and I, I say that, you know, kind of almost, almost uh, you know, as, as a reaction nowadays, but I used to have conversations where somebody would say, well, let's just get this done. And, and I'm like, well, will you sign it. <laughs> Cause I'm not, yes signing sir. It. and yes that's, sir. that's a hard, and I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, now, there's a fine line there. You can't be so, you know, full of yourself that you're just being stubborn and not getting anything done. But the, the fine art of understanding, okay, this is not how it can get done.
2: This over here is how it can get done. And that's a good point, Kevin. I, I have seen contracting officers as I was coming up before I got to be a senior uh, acquisition uh, professional that they, they, would, uh, they would get the contracting package in the inbox and it would be there for weeks as they try to contemplate do they want to sign it do they want to move forward because they're afraid or there's risk or um sometimes out of just uh i'm not going to do it because i'm at, at the general is not pushing me i have the warrant and yes you you can't you cannot you cannot stifle um progress or an operation and at the same time as a contracting officer we have no input to the operations or the operator or if we're buying a tank, uh, an M4 carbine, whatever these equipment is going to be used for in operations, we, we don't influence how or what they execute it, but we need to give them the equipment. And when he pulls or she pulls that trigger, it better work.
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what we're here. <laughs> we're here to enable people to get stuff done. Yes, sir.
2: So, so what's your third one? Let's see. The third one, I would say um, better communication, understanding, understanding the PMO's requirement. What is driving the requirement? As a, I don't, Even as a young contracting officer, all the way up to Lieutenant Colonel when I was has a, had a division or a team, there is always issues in regards to a good statement of work or um, need a current and reasonable IGCEs. Uh, the, the tech eval should be clear and easily understood in accordance with the RFP. What color of money you should be using in regard to what you're buying, O&M, PROC, RDT&E? Better communication and understanding with the program management offices as I, as I tr- transfer into a different area besides just doing contingency stuff is, is, is paramount because it impacts on um, the acquisition or the contracting strategy slipping to the right or redos um, or the contractor or vendor not understanding clearly or providing a, a bid that's not meeting what the initial requirement is because the government didn't uh, communicate very well what they were wanting. And it, it continues today, but th- that's one of the things that I wish I knew as a KO that, hey, I just can't use an old statement of work. I just can't use a, um, something that the other person used before me. I, I should understand what I'm doing there and talk with the with customer.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the, the primary tenets of the podcast is, is, mm-hmm driving for more communication and it, that's I mean, you and i talking about this is making people more aware of it so it's just it's a great example of of how easy it is to forget that you're throwing a rock in a pond and like everybody needs to understand you know where those ripples are going and who they're impacting and it's very exactly when you when you when you make a decision about something you know something theoretically as simple as what color of money applies here well you does the person at the other end of that chain
2: who is pulling the money out of the bucket, does he know that? <laughs> you know, are you, right. does, does industry
1: know that and all that kind of
2: stuff? And that's a good point, Kevin, uh, in, uh, you know, industry, most time industry does know that sometimes they don't with my ability to work on both sides of, of, uh, the street in regards to industry and then working in embedded in the SOCOM and a program office. Yes. I ma- I help the customer or help the SOCOM manage those dollars and if the industry doesn't understand, you know what, what what that means, they 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 really need to ask and and uh, and, and find out and do some research to to, uh, to find out what the color of money is because some colors uh, end faster, some color of the money is for sustainment, some is brand new stuff, r d t e and your investment uh, into bidding proposals, depending on how and what it is, it could there, there could be great opportunities
1: there. <laughs> Indeed. So that that's a great segue to okay. So you retired in '09, and then what what is your what is your post? Contracting officer
2: career, Ben. Ah, uh, see, meeting competing uh, demands uh, both as a as a and in, from industry standpoint and as um, government because I'm a government contractor. When I say that, try to meeting uh, meet requirements of limited budget and still enable the customer to meet soft army, navy, air force, marines, whatever the mission is. But at the same time, industry with uh, Vendor competition and the decreasing DoD acquisition budget environment uh, for what's out there. Now, I'm not saying that there's limitations. There's a lot out there for small business and, and large business to go for, but it, it, it is very competitive now. If I can say that, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would agree. So, so when you
1: when you left in '09. And, and so, what's what was your what was your experience leaving the army? And, and the reason I ask is that we have some some of our podcast uh, fans and listeners they email and ask. You know, I'm I'm getting ready to retire. Um, what what's been what do you suggest I do as far as transitioning from either being active duty contracting person or a a acquisition professional as a civilian or, or whatever into what you do? Because you know, you're you're now as successful
2: on the industry side as you were when you're on, on the government side. Kevin, that's a good question. Uh, I, I have to admit, uh, I, I had huge anxiety, and most of the guys I meet, <laughs> I'm serious, huge anxiety. You 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 don't know what you don't know, what you think you know, <laughs> and 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 you really, uh, I would say we we cut ourselves short because the skills and training, at least from the business standpoint, acquisition and contract, we really have skills besides you know just kicking down doors or shooting from a tank, and and what I was so worried about was, man, I need a job. And what I did was I considered having, uh, paying a person to do a a resume for me, which I decided that was stupid. I sat down in my study. I got all of my evaluation reports and my experiences put in one stack, my awards in another, put that stuff in order where I can identify and put it into layman's terms or I say business terms, And industry terms, so it doesn't have all of the military jargon. Wrote out a a, a resume and then um, went to the retirement um, preparation training that they had. thought I knew everything when I went to the three-day training. I did not know everything. (laughs) I learned that you you need to be able to network. You need to know how to properly dress. As a military officer, you you think you know how to dress, but sometimes you may come out with a plaid shirt and striped. Pants and thinking you're looking hot, but you. you <laughs> That's you, a you great re- image. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> you really need to understand how to dress, act, and look professional. And once I sat down and put that together, drew up the resume, I put it on CareerBuilder and Monster.com. I also reached out to, uh, and since I was working at Centcom, I think at the time as a acquisition staff officer to. uh, uh, the, the, the CG then, I knew some people at SOCOM, so I reached out to them. You must be able to network. They knew I was a contracting officer type um, and told them that I was getting ready to retire over at uh, SOCOM in the Acquisition Center. They also said, send your resume into to uh, post it on uh, USGov. I did that. And um, I. after that, I prayed about it. Next thing I know, I'm on leave probably maybe 30 days doing a little fishing, kind of liking it, and thinking, hey, I'm not in a hurry. And next thing you know, I get a call uh, regarding my resume on monster.com. From my understanding, posting of resumes and then just letting it sit there is not a high percentage of getting a call back. Normally, it's mostly networking, knowing someone and getting into uh, a position or opportunity that way. But in this case, they called me off of Monster and then the government also called me in regards to contracting um, officer positions. And it didn't take long. And I was very happy to get the first call and I was Uh, negotiating and working with the the salary part. And then I got the government calling and I had already been hired by industry by then and to be a consultant or um, DOD contractor. And I went that way instead of going back into uh, the government as a uh, contracting officer. Oh, cool. That's that's kind of impressive that you uh, had the the forethought to sit down and
1: make two stacks. (laughs) It's like this is all the content I already have about me. And here's all the words that I already had about me and then and then particularly the, that that's a really good advice to take it out of out of the DOD and in government lingo and and put you know put the business language on it. And that's I see that a lot. <laughs> I think I, I I went through the same cycle. <laughs> I mean, I still kind of struggle with, with you know, we joke about using acronyms all the time. In fact, by the way, one of the acronyms you use, C G, that stands for commanding general. For those of you who <laughs> don't know. Um it, Thanks, yep. And it's, it's funny that when I give presentations, I always, you know, if I, if I use an acronym, call me out on it and I'll, I'll define it. So, yeah, it's, it's, you have to be out and, of the habit of doing that.
2: And I try to do the same. I'm, I'm glad you called me out on that one because, yeah, the, they use an acronym for such a, a wide range audience. They will probably write that down and go, now nah, I got to Google it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, goodness,
1: at least they can Google it, right? Yeah. So so what do you see is the the biggest hurdle in the in the government market for contracting professionals, for the acquisition process, you know, and just in general for government contracting as a whole? What do you see as the biggest challenge? I would
2: say LPTA best best value. Procurement goes through reforms every few decades, you know, but the current environment from my observation for both inside the government and, and from industry, uh, industry's perspective is pretty bad. Um, there are things that can be done without formal change. You know, leaders need to, to, to lead. Managers they need to manage, and, and the workforce must, you know, exhibit some sound judgment and be honest and realistic about um, what they're trying to do and what they're trying to procure and, and, and what risk is there in trying to do it. i tell you, procurement personnel need to be well-trained. They work, the, the workload must be better managed because I'm, I'm talking to you, and you know what I'm talking about <laughs> being in SOCOM. <laughs> yep. They need to possess a strong problem-solving uh, understanding and skills We contractors need to help the federal government with its procurement issues and provide the right solutions and be realistic about what it can do. Over the past, what, 8, 10 years, the procurement workforce has shrunk by approximately 20%, and the number of contract actions has changed dramatically and and increased. So today's uh, acquisition workforce is, I hate to say this, less trained, um, more hurried, um, asked to do more, and that's just the facts. So I would say those challenges are are what are in front of us. They can be overcome with good leadership, sound training, and uh, sound judgment, commitment, dedication, because we're still providing uh, U.S. forces with the equipment they need each and every day to do the best job they can to protect this nation.
1: Yeah, and one of the one I see my answer to that is similar to yours, and the but it's more specific to the, the training. Is I feel like there are people that are that are not given enough context and training and access to knowledge about how this market works from both sides, and it's you know it's one right. of one of the reasons that the podcast is is you know, we get emails from people saying, "Wow, I never knew how crazy debriefings were from the government side." I, we've had government people email us and say, "Wow, I, I know how to do a, a debriefing better." And, and not that we're right. savants, it's just that we've screwed it up so many times that I can tell you, don't do it this way. Yes, <laughs> that, right. that kind of stuff, is, is that's what's missing. It's kind of cool that you're, we're all on the same page. Okay, well then let's flip the coin there. What do you see as the biggest opportunity, the, the biggest area for, for you know, good things that are happening in the, in the government market?
2: Let's see, let's see. I would say, despite... Uh, the recent budget cuts in the US federal marketplace there's still plenty of room and opportunity for small and large businesses you know the, the federal government typically spends about 500 billion in contracts every year and the law requires that 23% of that go to uh to uh, small businesses so doing business with the large purchase of goods i say doing business with the large largest purchaser of goods and services such as the, the DOD isn't easy but there is Always opportunity out there if you want to seek it out and then hook up with great uh, companies like yours, Kevin, to give you some insight on what your product is, what do you have to offer, what niche you're in. Should you all go for that? Is it better to go commercial or uh, a um, defense contract type of uh, acquisition? And there is opportunity out there, but you have to prepare, you have to look for it, you have to use the tools out there. Because it's still opportunity now, but I'm telling you, the, the listening to Mr. Gertz yesterday at the all hands SOCOM's uh, acquisition executive, and uh, listening to uh, other uh, senior acquisition professionals, um, it's going to be a uh, difficult from a Department of Defense contract budget standpoint. There's still commercial uh, ca- uh, contract requirements out there. There's plenty, but it's going to be it's going to be a little tight the next couple of years. And then we have a new administration coming on board next year, which we don't know what's going to happen there. I do know one thing will probably happen. That's a CRA, probably extended one. So you know, it's, we got some wonderful times ahead. That <laughs> there are opportunities embedded. I don't want to sound like a, 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 a negative nanny or a negative Ned, but uh, that's that's the that's the facts there, Kevin.
1: Yeah, and, and by the way, CRA stands for Continuing Resolution. And so what that means is that Congress doesn't get the budget passed, and, and things drag on, and government contracting gets more complicated. Again. again and so i appreciate the, the plug for skyway <laughs> uh, but yeah that I, I i'm i'm really uh i really appreciate you being candid about the fact that, you know this market isn't easy it's not for everybody and and it's it it's you have to plan for it you and we talk about that a lot with the, the value of targeting that's my favorite topic is targeting is the the target, market is yes. ideal for targeting but man it's brutal to you it beats you up if you don't target <laughs> and that's
2: that's a, that's a lesson that a lot of people end up losing a lot of money to learn one thing that I've identified over years in the acquisition community is just because you are technically proficient does not mean you are a leader, that you can lead a team of contracting professionals, manage their workload, prioritize, get the work done, and get it out and get it awarded. There are a lot of moving parts and pieces after you get uh, stamped with a warrant. Then in there. And I'm, I'm excited to continue to grow that way. Because people are going to ask, so what's the best way to get a hold of you? How do we, how do we find you? The best way to get hold of me uh, during the workday is at uh, floyd.smith.ctr at socom.mil. If you email me, I will respond. If you have a question pertaining to anything that I said, uh, I will be happy to uh, respond and and help you out. Awesome. And and are you on LinkedIn, I assume? I am on LinkedIn, yes. Yes. And yeah, and to, to to wrap up,
1: you know, he's he's in he, here in Tampa Bay. He works at McDill Air Force Base, um, and you know, he was he's been on both sides of defense. And I really appreciate you taking the time to give us, particularly that I, I really enjoyed personally enjoyed the whole contingency contracting officer because that that's such a great description of a role that most people, even people in contracting, have no idea. How squirrely <laughs> that particular – like things yes. like you, you don't walk out with the money. You have you and then somebody else has the money. But by the way, you're walking around with you know, $30,000 in cash through Afghanistan. That's right.
2: <laughs> it's right. And, 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 with the, and with security detail usually. I always had a security detail. But you're right. It, it gets pretty squirrely. When I, when I think back on it, uh, yeah it was pretty squirrely. <laughs> But I like working for the company I work for now. It's a great time. But I don't think I would want to go back. And I, I, was, I was gung-ho and wanted to do, do great things with the Navy SEALs down in the Philippines and then some of the Army operators in Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. So it was, it was a great opportunity. But, man. But now, you know, you have civilian contract. I mean, um, regular government contracting officers, women and male, that have gone. So that's, that's an improvement because we never have enough military contingency contract. That, that's, that's a good point. And it's, uh,
1: it's a unique skill that it takes time to learn it. And not to mention the fact that it's dangerous. <laughs> yes, sir.
0: Okay, that's it for another episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, if you have questions, comments, or complaints, send me an email at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. One last thing, if you enjoyed what you heard today, please tell a friend. You can help make government contracts better one contract at a time by spreading the word about the podcast. Thanks again.